Today's Global Kidney Care Podcast is hosted by Michele Provenzano, Jr., Assistant Professor, University of Bologna, and Daniel O'Hara, Nephrologist, Kidney Specialist, Royal North Shore Hospital. Look, it's a great discussion. Um, the EGFR slope has been a really uh, a hot topic of interest. Um, it was initially developed as a surrogate endpoint because our trials were taking so long. Um, and the irony is in, in recent years, we've had the SGLT2 trials that have all completed earlier than planned because the effect was so much stronger than we expected. Hi, everybody. I... It's a pleasure to start this uh, podcast session by presenting Professor Levin, Professor Yardin also. Uh, professor Adira Levin is a professor of medicine and uh, head division of nephrology at the University of British Columbia. She has a great experience in research on the, both uh, prognostic research and also in clinical trials. And uh, um, she advocated for patient rights in her uh, life to equitable access to care in uh, chronic kidney disease and uh, kidney disease in general by uh, by introducing the uh, the follow up of chronic kidney disease patients, namely the um, the, the patient actually enter in uh, uh, is referred to a nephrologist and then is followed until uh, uh, major events such as death and the stage of kidney disease or, or kidney transplantation. Uh, from a research point of view, uh, she um, uh, focused on uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, chronic kidney disease, comorbidities, and uh, uh, to find the optimal models of care. In particular, uh, she made a lot of uh, uh, research around the to um, to go behind uh, hey, the EGFR and albuminuria as uh, risk factors for uh, kidney disease progression and to um, to go more in depth in the individual uh, patient prognosis. Um, on the other side, Professor Meg Yardin is uh, the director of, uh, director of uh, NH MRC Clinical Trial Center at the University of Sydney. And she has a lot of experience in as a clinical trialist, contributed to the creation and to the development of uh, innovative design of uh, novel clinical trials, such as uh, the adaptive <clears throat> studies, uh, the randomized rescue protocols, and the algorithm-based uh, studies. Uh, now we are, so we have a lot of, of experience with us. Daniel O'Hare is a young nephrologist and uh, also a researcher at the North Store Private Hospital of uh, Sydney and has also uh, experience in the clinical trials, clinical trial, randomized clinical trials. I am Michele and uh, I am a, a full-time researcher at the University of Bologna in Italy. I work as a researcher uh, in, um, and uh, I conducted a first trial of my, by myself uh, uh, on chronic kidney disease patient and uh, work on both observational studies and uh, randomized studies. Question for uh, Meg, uh, because here we are um, discussing about this uh, very, very interesting uh, uh, topic that is the Heisen Act. I would like to ask uh, Meg uh, to tell us about the Heisen Act in general and why this initiative was established uh, through the Heisen. What does it involve in general? Well, thanks, Michele. I'm uh, very happy to talk about that and very happy to be with everyone today. Um, ISN Act is the ISN Advancing Clinical Trial Group. 
Um, and what we are is a collection of people interested in trials in kidney disease, um, and we're looking looking to improve the quality, the uptake, and the sheer number of trials in kidney disease. Without trials, we're not going to get the evidence we need to inform practice. So we don't actually conduct trials ourselves, but we look for all the enablers and try and facilitate the development of trials. Okay, I, I imagine this was uh, this was a big challenge in the past, in particular at the beginning when trial lasted a lot of years and uh, uh, was a big uh, big work around this point. And uh, Meg, can you tell uh, tell us about some of the international the international clinical trials you have been involved in? What uh, okay. what are the best trials? Yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. Trials in nephrology have been challenging, just to pick up on that point. Um, and we have, you know, we went for decades, it felt like, with long trials that just, you know, failed to find new interventions. We're going through a renaissance now. Um, we've, there are many more interventions available, so it's a really exciting time. And the other thing is we're learning more about how to conduct trials, um, how to get more efficient endpoints um, and more efficient study designs. Um, so it is, it is really a, a fruitful period. Um, I've been fortunate to be involved in quite a few uh, trials. And firstly, uh, as, as a physician, in my own hospital. And that's something that's um, accessible to a lot of people. Not everyone, unfortunately, yet, you know, we're still yet to get to the period where every clinical centre is able to offer research, but still that's something that many of us can um, access pretty easily. Um, and through that, I was involved in a lot of large um, pharma commercially sponsored studies and some investigator studies and I was able to join the Kidney Trials Network in Australia. Um, and as a young nephrologist, that was a terrific way to, to just hear about trials and learn, learn a bit about it. Um, and then more recently, I've been involved in some large trials uh, for chronic kidney disease in one of the SGLT2 inhibitor trials, and that was incredibly exciting. Um, that was an international trial, and it was a terrific way to meet people from all around the world um, who were who were helping to complete that study. And I also um, am involved in a number of investigator-initiated studies, and they're studies which are funded by academia or public monies or grants, um, and they're also very valuable because they're often asking questions that, that won't be answered um, in, in any other way. Mm. So I guess a, a, a range there. Um, what's common, though, is a, a focus on the clinically important outcomes um, you know, sometimes we we all do small studies to to set up um, the design of a trial, but the really exciting thing is when you're designing the trial that we'll actually see if there's a difference in clinical outcomes. Very clear. Thank you. Thank you, Meg. And why it is important for, to conduct multinational trials? What do you think about uh... Look, I think I think it's really important in nephrology, um, and that's because to answer important questions, you need a really strong design and you need large numbers often. And most countries are not big enough to host large numbers. So if you restrict yourself to what's uh, convenient, if, if you restrict yourself to your own hospital or your own country, you'll often then have to downgrade, you know, the importance, uh, the endpoints that you can, you can look at. Whereas once you accept that you need a certain number of participants or a certain trial design, 
and and go international, then you're likely to you're much more likely to be able to complete that. In my experience, the trials that have recruited well and recruited to target are the ones that have gone international early on. The other benefit too is that you get to see more than your own backyard. You know, nephrology is different in different parts of the world. Um, and by looking at that, you learn a lot about, uh, you know, what's what's essential and what, what things are just facets of the local setting and the local environment. So I think you learn a lot and, and it's a lot of fun. You know, I've, through trials, I've managed to um, meet people from all around the world um, and the different ways of doing things, different personalities. Uh, you know, it's it's really exciting, and you you know that you're part of this huge group of people who are all striving for a common endpoint. So it's a great feeling. Yeah, it's very 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 important as perspective. Uh, and uh, Meg, uh, what are uh, what do you think? What are the, some of the particular challenges uh, in international nephrology research? Could you tell us about uh, some barriers you have encountered in your other research at the beginning or also recently? Yeah, that, look, there are always barriers. Um, I'd have to say money, money and money. Um, it takes money and resources to conduct trials. Um, now, beyond that, um, there, there are other challenges. Uh, I think we need a much stronger research workforce. There's still in many parts of the world, certainly in my own, there's a separate research infrastructure from the clinical infrastructure. I think where health services adopt research and incorporate research, that's where you get really successful outcomes. Um, and, you know, a, a prime example of that is the recovery trial that was run from the in the UK for COVID. Everyone is singing the praises of recovery. And I think it's one of the key keys to its success was it was just embedded, completely embedded into the, the clinical workflow. Um, now, a lot of that, in the end, it comes to resourcing. Uh, you need resources to set up those systems in the first place. But once you've set those up and you incorporate research into clinical workflows, both are more efficient um, and the whole thing is generally cost effective. Um, we did analysis here in Australia a while ago, and for every dollar you put into research, you get around five dollars back in, in improved clinical outcomes and more efficient health health service utilisation. So you need to take that first step and incorporate research into health services. But once you do that, you get better outcomes more efficiently. I think it's it's a win win. Yeah. Megan, do you think? Uh that the, the discovery of novel endpoint in clinical trials, such as also the, the drop in GFR, 40% reduction, helped to shorten uh, significantly the, the trial duration, or uh, uh, or do we uh, uh, also search for novel endpoint in the future, or not? Yeah, look, it, it's a great discussion. Um, the eGFR slope has been a really uh, a hot topic of interest. Um, it was initially developed as a surrogate endpoint because our trials were taking so long. Um, and the irony is in, in recent years, we've had the SGLT2 trials that have all completed earlier than planned because the effect was so much stronger than we expected. But, but nonetheless, they have shown, they really served to show that EGFR slope does correlate with the um, with the more traditional clinical endpoints. So I think it's a huge, a huge benefit. 
Um, it won't be the solution for every trial, uh, particularly agents that have an acute drop in EGFR. It's problematic if, as we move forward and start looking at combinations where we might get compounded drop, that might be an issue. Um, there'll be acute, uh, uh, acute conditions where EGFR slope is not the right endpoint. So you're absolutely right. It's a great endpoint, but we do need to keep always keep thinking. And the other point I'll make is that um, shorter trials have a have an advantage when you're really struggling to get evidence. So in rare conditions, things like EGFR slope suddenly make things possible. But what a shorter trial also means is you don't get as much safety information. So for common conditions like, you know, cardiovascular endpoints associated with chronic CKD, for instance, in those situations, often the large trials are good because they give you that safety signal. So, you know, it's always, I, I don't think we'll ever get to this point where there, there's going to be one size fits all. And of course, what we haven't even started to talk about, and I know Adira um, will is an expert in this area, is some of the endpoints aren't what we get from the lab. Some of the important lab endpoints are how, how treatments make people feel um, and their quality of life, their symptoms. Um, and so for those endpoints, I think we're really, we've really got a long way to go in developing more accurate ways of measuring that and making sure that we can reflect the patient experience in a meaningful way, but a way that we can use in, a, in, in trials across multiple centres. And that way, if we can do that, then it's much easier then for funders to support agents that make people feel better. Thank you very much, Meg. This is a very interesting uh, discussion and very challenging. We should open our perspectives, not uh, not focus on a single point. Okay, thank you very much. Just the last question, Meg. <laughs> How do you find the, the right people to collaborate uh, with internationally? such as Daniel and myself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> look through ISN Act. Everyone should join ISN Act. Um, yeah. Look, it's a good point. Um, it, sometimes you meet people formally um, through organisations. Often you meet people through previous endeavours. You, know, you do a trial and you meet, you know, there are thousands of people involved in a trial, so you meet people and then the next trial comes along and you'll, you'll reach out, um, often through clinical networks. <laughs> And, you know, look, I wouldn't underestimate things like conferences, the, the traditional ways we get together. You do, you do get to meet people and you meet the friends of friends. Um, so that's a, that's been a, a good method for me. I think, um, in the end, you find the people you can work with and the people you get on with. And that's a fundamental, you know, trials are a lot of work. So you want to be working in a team of people who get on. But by the same token, people who are interested in trials, um, they're exciting people on the whole. I found they're they're interested, they're curious, yeah, they're great people to work with. Yes. Motivated person in the one sense. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you very much, Meg, for your uh, for your discussion, for your for your answers. Now I give my uh, uh, give the discussion to Daniel for the second part. Thanks so much and nice to join you all. So yeah, as Mihaly mentioned, I'm Daniel. I'm a nephrologist based in Sydney and a, a researcher also working with the ISN to the Global Trials Focus. So really pleased to have the opportunity to chat to Professor Adira Levin. Um, I might just start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about the international trial work you've done. I'm sure we could have a whole session talking about all the things you've 
you've been up to and currently doing, but a little snapshot would be great. Yeah, so I guess, you know, um, piggybacking on um, Dr. Jardine's uh, comments, there's a lot of trials I've been involved in that are uh, either investigator-initiated or run through an academic organization and industry-funded. So um, there are things um, where I've been involved in data safety monitoring boards or advisory boards or steering committees, and there are others where I've been involved in those activities as well as um, enrolling patients and actually being involved in the mechanics of the trial. So um, like her, and in many ways over the last few years, we've worked a lot together on the SGLT2 uh, studies, but there are others looking at aspirin in dialysis patients, asking and answering questions that have never been asked, um, called the ASPIRED trial. There's the ongoing question in dialysis patients as to what sodium bath is or isn't safe, called RESOLVE. And so there are many, um, and uh, as she intimated, they come in different shapes and sizes. Uh, they are funded and organized in different ways. And I think that's part of the excitement is to actually uh, participate in different ways in these different endeavors. Fantastic. And I was curious to hear what your thoughts were on what are the sort of hot topics in nephrology at the moment. It sounds like you're involved in a number of trials of some of those hot topics, but any particular thoughts there? I think we are forever trying to figure out how to arrest general um, disease progression as well as specific disease progression. And I think with new um, agents and new strategies that seems to be almost within reach or certainly becoming within reach. So delaying progression of kidney disease and its comorbidities remains, I think, the hot topic. I think there are uh, ongoing specific questions around um, what are things that improve the uh, lives and symptoms of people with kidney disease. All of us in this world know about the um, quite devastating impact of symptoms like restless legs and um, itch and other things in dialysis patients, but also the amazing fatigue and lack of energy that they feel. So I think these solving these things that impact people's lives dramatically um, have remained a little bit elusive and, and that remains a hot topic. I think we're a little bit over the fix the number uh, problem that has plagued nephrology or perhaps had nephrology focus on fix the number problem for a long time, but I think that remains perhaps one of the ongoing challenges because we do have medications and strategies that do fix numbers and we get a little bit excited about that and, and forget the complex physiology that those numbers represent. So I think that remains yeah. a bit of a hot topic. Absolutely. And as you've a lot of your researchers involved, you know, targeting those patient reported outcomes and and patient well-being. A lot of patients won't know their numbers. They just know how they feel when they wake up in the morning. So that's really important work. Um, One interesting thing is, you know, so much of the research that's being done is in well-developed countries that have the resources and the infrastructure to conduct conduct trials. I guess two important things are how we sort of bring research to more developing countries and also how we make sure that the information that's gained in in research around the world is is getting to to different places and is is you know achieving improved patient outcomes 
you know, being implemented in, in both developed and developing nations. Any thoughts on those challenges? Yeah, it's a really small question, Daniel. I should be able to answer that. In yeah. <laughs> no, so I, I think it's going to, it's always been a challenge um, to conduct studies in different resource settings. I think um, the more practical and pragmatic we make the trial, the less burdensome we make the trial in terms of both data collection and documentation. And these are all things that are becoming more normal and accepted within the general clinical trials world, but also um, within nephrology. So I think that will help to engage people. Uh, ISN Act and many of the uh, other activities within uh, the International Society of Nephrology are striving to both create researchers within those countries, because that certainly helps to contribute the or contributes to their ability to participate, but also um, normalizing the whole culture that we need all of our patients to be in trials to help us answer questions across diverse backgrounds. Uptake of knowledge is often dependent on those three words that I've used before, money, money, and money. So, you know, where drugs can be made or, or repurposed because they're already off patent um, or can be manufactured locally at an eighth of the cost of what it is from commercially, those are ways to make things accessible. But first you have to prove that they work. And I think that that remains one of the big challenges is do all these drugs work in diverse populations with different, um, with different, you know, sociocultural and ethnic backgrounds and different genetics, because we also are learning that there are different uh, ways that bodies are programmed to to respond to different interventions. And I think we are not yet at that uh, very sophisticated place yet in nephrology. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of room to move, isn't there? And so if researchers are sort of maybe just entering the research space and wanting to find out more about conducting clinical trials, do you have any recommendations? And perhaps you might be able to speak to some of the resources you've overseen with the ISNAC program? Yes. So I think there are many ways to get involved. I think, you know, um, I'm always uh, impressed of the fact that at all universities, no matter what the country, there are people involved in clinical research. And I'd say that like reaching out locally to wherever people are training it is certainly very good. ISN has toolkits and various other activities, including um the Global Trials Focus, which helps people, as you know, to understand clinical trials and their relevance uh, to their clinical practice, uh, being involved in different activities, um, going to meetings, um, asking questions, and then, you know, trying to figure out if people have truly answered the question that you thought was important versus they answered a question that sounded like the question that you thought was important. I think that often uh, for young people, they go, well, they've already been answered. But if you actually look closely, it hasn't been answered the way that you've conceived of it. And finding mentors or people that are willing to sit with you and and, and create a space, uh, a safe space to ask questions and to explore best ways to answer them, I think is uh, an excellent way for early career researchers or people interested. You know, for our residents, I, I say, you know, start with a case report. Um, start with things that are tangible that don't depend on anyone else and learn how to ask and answer questions 
and discover what is and isn't known about a certain topic. And that can stimulate you to then learn other things and then getting or finding ways to hone your skills and taking courses. There's so many online now, but the toolkits, as I mentioned, at various Congresses, be that World Congress or ASN or ERA, there are often courses that give that whet your appetite with respect to understanding trials better, critical appraisal, trial design. Those are all things that people can do to bolster their confidence and also the discipline of asking and answering good questions. Excellent. That's really helpful advice. Thank you so much. So that brings us to the end of our questions for today. Are there any other particular insights or, or topics you'd like to talk on in the, in the topic of uh, international clinical trial research? I'll throw it to either yourself or Professor Jardine. I, I guess I'd just like to echo what Adira said. You know, we've, we've just had International Clinical Trials Day. Um, it's, it's something that generally everyone can find a way to get involved with if you want. Um, many hospitals are conducting research, um, maybe as part of bigger efforts, may, maybe part of local efforts. efforts. Um, quality assurance programs are, are all about systematically finding ways to do things better um, and, and, you know, checking what we are doing and seeing if it can be improved. So, look, I would just encourage people, especially people early in their careers, um, to just look out for those opportunities. And as Adira said, start small, um, start small, start large, uh, but but get involved because it is incredibly rewarding and it and it helps your clinical practice. Actually, can I just um, jump on? That? So I think that research hones the discipline to ask and answer questions in a systematic way. To take good care of patients, you need to systematically, in a disciplined way, ask and answer questions and synthesize the data that you get from an individual person to construct you know, your hypothesis to what's wrong and then test if what you're doing to help them get better helps them at all. And so I think that research really helps you be a better doctor for your individual patient. The other thing I might stress is that we in nephrology need to change or um, have an attitude that when we don't know the answer, we need to enroll people into either observational studies and registries or into a trial if if there is one for their condition so that we can learn better together. And I think we have not done that well as a group because of the dearth and lack of, of well-designed and good clinical trials, you know, in the last couple of decades, we have not developed internally a culture that supports research the way that we would hope occurs over the next 10 years, that you could not imagine taking care of someone who wasn't in a clinical trial. And that would be a really important message for people. Yeah, it'd be fantastic to just normalize that as a part of care, that it's just expected. It's not your particularly proactive patients or your patients who are, you know, particularly non-responsive to treatments. It's it's an accepted part of standard of care. Mm. That, that would be a really wonderful way forward. What I really like is the concept of the learning health systems, you know, where every episode of care is helping you to learn better to treat treat the next person and you integrate research and clinical care. Yeah, Something to echo, aim for. Yeah, I would echo that. No question. Um, no question at all that, that normalising 
the fact that we don't know but can learn from systematic evaluation of our care is huge. And we need to set up systems and, and to go back to where you started, Meg, the, the recovery trial, an example of a healthcare system that believes in that ability to generate data in real time to help answer difficult questions. And certainly advocating for that within each of our healthcare systems, especially in the developed world, uh, would be huge. And it reflects our, our clinical experience, really, isn't it? That each patient you're learning something from. So as a system and as a research collective, you know, there is value in each and every patient encounter. Right. Excellent. Any other thoughts before we conclude? I'd just encourage everyone to have a look at the ICENACT uh, webpage. Uh, you can Google it. It's probably the most straightforward way to get there. Um, there are a lot of resources. Uh, the Global Trials Focus Adira spoke about. That's a monthly newsletter you can get. You can read it during a bus journey and it gives you a, a, a summary, a systematic summary of trials that have been completed. There's the Trials cook Toolkit. Uh, there are lots of ways to get involved. So I just encourage everyone to go there and um, sign up. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Professor Levin and Professor Jardine for your time and Dr. Michele Provenzano. Thank you for co-hosting and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you.